The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6 and reading from verse 5 to verse 9. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as, unt, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there any respect of persons with him. Now, we come back to a further consideration of this most important and interesting statement. We began considering it last Sunday morning. It uh, is this uh, third example which is given us by the uh, Apostle of uh, how we are to put into practice the general injunction of the 21st verse of the 5th chapter where he says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. This is how people who are filled with the Spirit are to live. They are to live thus, submitting themselves one to another. Wives are to submit to husbands, as we've seen. Children are to obey their parents. And here now he tells those who are servants that they are to be obedient to them that are their masters according to the flesh. But as we've been indicating, the apostle always gives the other side as well. He's told husbands what their duties are to their wives. He's told parents their duties and responsibilities as regards their children. And here he's very careful to have a word for the masters. You get this perfect balance of the scripture. Now, here, as we look at this particular injunction or application of the truth, we find ourselves, as I was indicating last Sunday morning, face to face with a very great question, a very great problem. Because the apostle is here dealing with the condition of slaves. Servants means literally slaves. So we are looking at the great problem of slavery. But it isn't only that, of course. In uh, dealing with it in principle, as he does, the uh, apostle obviously raises the whole question of these relationships of men one to another in terms of economics, working conditions, trade unionism. Yes, it even includes politics, social conditions in general, and indeed one's whole relationship to the state. Because the principle involved is that of a man who is in any position of subordination to another. And as the state is the employer of so many at the present time, the whole question of our relationship to the state is involved, all of us. So that in the last analysis, the apostle is raising here in principle even the question of rebellion or revolution. Now, uh, I need not uh, take any of your time in reminding you again this morning 
that uh, these problems are very practical and are vital to all of us. And uh, certainly there are many Christians in many parts of the world this morning who are having to face this very matter most acutely. There are countries where there are actual rebellions taking place and about to take place. Where do the Christians come into all of this? What is the governing principle which is to rule the attitude of a Christian to all these involved and complicated situations? Well, fortunately for us, the great apostle has troubled to work it out here in principle. And uh, we have noticed this, that uh, the approach is, is, is quite unique. You'll never find what you read here anywhere else. It's unlike every other teaching. And that is because, of course, it's Christian. It is written to people who are to be filled with the Spirit. It is written on the assumption that these people have been born again. That they are not uh, like everybody else. They were sometimes darkness. They are now light in the Lord. It assumes all that. This is not a letter written to the world. It's not a newspaper article for everybody. It is a teaching that only Christian people can understand, and obviously they're the only people, therefore, who can ever hope to put it into practice. It is peculiar and special and unique. Well, now, what have we seen? Well, the big thing that we find is this, that it is astonishing to notice that comparatively little space is given to these great questions in the whole of the Bible. I reminded you of the passages in which you find these references, but they're comparatively few. Now, that is a most interesting and significant thing in and of itself, that this great big book should give such comparatively little space and attention to this problem that is constantly arising in the daily life of all people. And from that, we drew two main deductions, and these are they. I'm saying all this because we can't follow the rest of the argument without holding this in our minds as background. The Bible's primary concern is with our relationship to God. That doesn't mean that it isn't interested in our relationship to one another. But its primary interest, its essential emphasis, always, is in our relationship to God. Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and the thing that men forgets, unto God the things that are God's. Now, everywhere the Bible puts its great emphasis just there. And the second principle is this, that the Bible views our life in this world as being but of secondary importance. The Bible teaches us that we are but strangers and pilgrims here. Our home, our citizenship is in heaven. So that everything that happens to us here, from the biblical standpoint, takes a secondary place. Now, there I say are these two great controlling principles. And it is because of that that the Bible gives so little space and time and attention to the consideration of these many problems that are always crowding round and about us in our daily lives as Christians. The very fact that it gives such little attention is a vital part of the teaching. You see, all its emphasis is there. It is God. It is eternity. 
And this life and world and all its problems must always be viewed in the light of that. And from that I drew this deduction. That this, therefore, is the business and the preaching of the, uh, and the business and the, to be the practice of the church. The business of the church is not to deal directly, therefore, with these problems. She only deals with them indirectly. The church and her preaching are to do exactly what the Bible does itself. It mustn't spend the whole of its time in entering into these problems in detail. No, the business of the church is to deal with the great general principles and to help men, therefore, in the light of them to meet their particular problems and perplexities. I can put it like this as a principle. The business of the church is not to deal with conditions as such, but it is with the Christian's relationship to these conditions which is a very different matter. Now, you see the importance of this great principle at the present time. But some people object at this point and say, but what about your Old Testament prophets? Weren't they always dealing with these practical problems and conditions? But the answer to that is quite simple. The nation of Israel was also the church. There was no division between the state and the church. There the state and the church were one. The nation was the church. So that as the prophets addressed their remarks to the nation, they are addressing their remarks to God's people, to the believers. So the answer is perfectly simple and perfectly plain. The business of the church always is to deal with conditions in the church. And as there the church and state were one, it was their business to do so. But the moment you come to the New Testament, you find an entirely different position. Here is the church separated out of the world, bearing a relationship to the states, but not one with the states. And therefore we must be guided by this great principle. There is no contradiction between the old and the new. The attention is always given to the church, to God's people, and to God's people in their relationship to him and as pilgrims of eternity. Now, uh, the deduction we therefore draw is this, that the church's task primarily is to evangelize, is to bring people to a knowledge of God, and then, having done that, to teach them how to live their life under God as his people. Now that is the great task of the church. But remember, her primary task with regard to the world that is outside is that of evangelism. The church is not here to reform the world because the world cannot be reformed. The business of the church is to evangelize, is to preach a gospel of salvation to men who are blinded by sin and under the dominion and the power of the devil. That is her primary task. And she must never do anything that militates against that primary task. Now, I'm suggesting to you that the moment the church begins to enter into the details of politics and economics and so on, she is doing something that militates against her primary task of evangelism. Let me take one obvious instance. Take the case of the church and communism at the present time. 
Now my contention is that it is not the business of the Christian church to be denouncing communism. She's spending a great deal of her time in doing that very thing. Why do I say it's wrong? Well, I say it's wrong for this reason. That the primary task of the church is to evangelize communists. It is to open their eyes, to bring them to conviction and to conversion. We are to regard all men, whatever their position, whether they're communists or capitalists or anything you may like to call them, we regard them all as sinners and equally as sinners. They're all lost. They're all damned. They all need to be converted. They all need to be born again. So the church looks on at all this in an entirely different way from everybody else. And therefore I suggest to you that if the church spends the whole of her time in denouncing communism, she is more or less shutting the door of evangelism amongst communists as firmly as she can possibly do. The communist says, oh, your Christianity is just anti-communist. I'm not going to listen to that message, and therefore you can't evangelize him. No, no, the church is not meant to deal with these positions directly. Her task is to preach her gospel to all and sundry, whatever they are, to bring them to a knowledge of Christ. She is to keep from interfering in details and in conditions, lest her primary task of evangelism be impeded and hindered. And she herself is shutting the door against the very thing that she claims that she should be doing. Well, now, that, I say, is what one deduces in general from this teaching. And we are always to do what the apostle does here, what we saw our Lord himself did, and what all the writers and teachers in the Bible do, whether it is the Old Testament or the New. Now then, what are the principles, therefore, that we deduce from all this? Well, let me put them to you. And again, let me ask you to be patient, because the whole truth is not going to be in any one of these principles. If I could have put it all into one, I would have done so, but it can't be done. I've got to give you a series of points, therefore, and some of them at first may appear to contradict others, but be patient. Don't allow your prejudices to govern you. Don't be in too much of a hurry. Let's look at them one by one. Here's the first principle. Christianity, obviously, does not abolish our relationship to social, political, and economic conditions. It doesn't abolish them. Now, why is it necessary to say that? Well, because many of the early Christians thought that the fact that they had become Christian abolished all that. And there are many people who still think the same thing. There are many people who seem to think that, uh, and as the early Christians did, that when a man becomes a Christian, he no longer is bound to his wife, who is not, still not a Christian. That's why Paul had to write the seventh chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians. It was happening on both sides. They were arguing like this. They said, we got married when we were pagans in unbelief. But now, of course, we're Christians. We see everything differently. My wife isn't a Christian. Well, I can't be bound any longer. It's hindering my Christian life. They were tending to walk out and to leave the unconverted wife. And many converted wives were doing exactly the same thing. But the apostle has to write to them and tell them not to do that. There were children who were doing the same thing. They'd been converted. Their parents hadn't. They said, of course, our parents no longer have any control over us. They don't understand. They're pagans. They're not Christians. And therefore, of course, uh, we now don't submit to them any longer. But you do, says Paul. And so it was with this question 
of servants in their relationship to masters. And indeed we find in the second epistle to the the Thessalonians in the third chapter that there were some Christians who even stopped working. They said, now of course we are in a new realm and we are looking for the return of the Saviour. So they stopped working and they were just looking to the heavens and waiting for the appearance of the Lord. And the apostle has to tell them quite plainly that if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. That that's a complete misunderstanding of Christianity. And uh, it all uh, comes up in the same way in connection with this relationship of servants and masters. You see, the tendency is to say at once, we're all equal now. Doesn't the Apostle Paul say there is neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free, nor male nor female? We are all equal. There's no difference between men and women any longer. Let them be ministers and preach. Let them be this and that in the church. There's no difference, doesn't Paul say, no longer male nor female? Now that's a complete misunderstanding, of course. What the Apostle is saying is that there is no difference from the standpoint of the possibility of salvation. But that doesn't do away with the orders of society. It doesn't abolish the inherent essential difference between a man and a woman or between these various other relationships. Now, you will find in the most interesting way in the history of the church how people have constantly dropped into this error. Take the sect known as the Anabaptists that arose in the 16th century. The Anabaptists fell into this trap, you see. They said, we're all equal now, and uh, we've nothing to do with the state. So they tried to cut themselves right off, to segregate themselves from the world in every respect. There are still people who tend to do that. They think it's wrong for a Christian to pay rates and taxes, as I indicated last Sunday. They think it's wrong for a Christian to take part in politics and things like that. And they don't vote at elections and so on. Now, all that is just a failure to see this first principle that the fact that we have become Christian does not dissolve nor abolish our relationship to the state and to masters and to social, political, and economic conditions. Well, no, there's no need to argue about this. It's all here. You see, what the apostle is saying here is this, that our becoming Christian does not even change the whole question of slavery. It doesn't abolish slavery, according to what he says here. He doesn't tell these slaves that now they're Christians, that the former conditions are abolished. He says the exact opposite. The slaves are to go on as they were before, but with this new standpoint which he here teaches them. And you remember the epistle to Philemon obviously teaches exactly the same thing. But let me give you what is perhaps the classical statement on all this from 1 Corinthians 7. Let me read verses 20 to 24. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a slave, a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, slave, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's slave, servant. Ye are bought with a price. 
Be not ye the servants, slaves of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. Now that is the classical statement in a way on this whole matter. Art thou called being a slave? Care not for it. Don't let that be the big thing in your life. Don't become anxious over that. Don't let that absorb all your attention. Don't let that come into the center. Care not for it. But if thou mayst be made free, use it rather. Now then, that is why I start by laying down that first great general principle. That the fact that we have become Christian does not abolish our relationship to social, political, and economic conditions. But now let me go on to a second principle, which is most astonishing. Christianity not only does not change our relationship to these conditions, it does not even condemn such things as slavery directly as being sinful. Now, you realize at once that this has been a great stumbling block to many people, and particularly during this last century. But it's our business to expand the scriptures. People say slavery is patently wrong and sinful. Christianity must of necessity denounce that. They're saying the same thing about various other things at the present time, which I needn't mention. They say, but it's obvious. Everybody can see that even a man who isn't a Christian, a man who's got a grain of a sense of fairness and righteousness and a view of men and the dignity of men, he must see at once that it's altogether wrong. And yet, you know, the plain fact is that the Bible does not condemn slavery as such directly. It doesn't do it. If it ever did do it, Paul would do it here. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it in writing to Philemon. He doesn't do it anywhere. Our Lord didn't do it. Now, this is something that the natural man simply cannot understand at all. And the rationalists of today, these critics of Christianity, they think that they have here an unanswerable point. Of course, the simple answer to them is this, that they've never even begun to see the two great controlling principles we've already laid down. They cannot see that it is a man's relationship to God that matters fundamentally. And that once a man has seen that, everything else becomes different to him. Even slavery, though he be a slave, he doesn't see it as he did before. He is Christ's freeman. You see, it is because these men are blind to the supernatural. Blind to the spiritual. They see nothing but this world. They see nothing but this life. And of course they're bound by that. And it vitiates the whole of their thinking. Christian thinking is unlike natural thinking at every point. And that is why, to me, there is nothing which is more tragic in the world this morning as the way in which men calling themselves Christians can join in and participate in the activities of these rationalist non-Christians at the present time. The whole approach, the whole thinking, is entirely different. Now, we must note this. Christianity does not even condemn such a thing as slavery 
directly as being sinful. And that is why no doubt slavery persisted throughout the centuries. Well, it's a very important matter for us to, to hold a firm grasp of in order that we may understand this teaching. But now let me go on to my third principle, which is this. Christianity, I say, in the second principle, does not even condemn such a thing as slavery. But thirdly, it does not condone slavery either. Neither does it justify it. Now, this is equally important. Here again has been a very frequent source of misunderstanding. There have been people who have thought that Christianity is nothing but a kind of justification of the status quo. I'm amazed at the blindness of people who are falling into the Roman Catholic trap at the present time. Roman Catholicism is fighting communism and is inviting all Protestants to come and join with her. All who use the name of Christian against that. And so many Christians are falling into the trap. They don't see, you see, that Roman Catholicism is mainly concerned to defend her own particular form of totalitarianism. It's simply one totalitarian system against another. It is defending the status quo. Christianity never does that. It doesn't condemn slavery, but it doesn't condone slavery. There's no word here of condemnation. It doesn't justify slavery. What is its attitude? Then you say, well, I've already told you. What Christianity is interested in is the way in which a Christian slave behaves himself towards his master and how the man who owns a slave treats his slave. That's what it does. It doesn't deal with the question of slavery per se. Now, you've got your principle, I trust. I don't want to mention some of the modern applications of this at the present time. But you see, the tragedy is today the Christian church is spending the whole of her time in dealing with these things directly. They're always preaching about them and talking, interfering and organizing their processions in this and in other lands, dealing with the problem directly. The Bible never does that. But what it is very concerned about is how the Christians on the two sides of the problem and the situation conduct themselves. Now this is really very vital teaching. So let me put it to you like this. Christianity, I say, is not concerned to condone this. It isn't here merely as a defense of the status quo. We hear such a lot today about defending Western civilization against this attack. It's all wrong. I'm not interested in Western civilization. I'm interested in the kingdom of God. And I'm as anxious as that men behind the Iron Curtain should be saved this morning as men on this side of the Iron Curtain. We must not take up a position of antagonism against men whom we want to win for Christ. If you spend the whole of your time attacking, you'll never win. That's why I never preach a temperance sermon. I want to see drunkards converted. Our business isn't to denounce drink. It is to get the poor drunkard to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that will deliver him. But the church so constantly is mistaking the teaching and going into these things in detail. So I put it like this. It isn't the business of the Christian church to preach the divine right of kings. There was a time when the church did that, you know. James I was a very astute man. He said, no bishop, no king. So they stood together. And the church became a defense of the divine right of kings. But she'd abrogated her whole position. 
She was being false to her teaching. That isn't the business of the Christian church. The business of the Christian church is not to defend any system, masters or men or anybody else. Christianity, I say, while it doesn't condemn slavery, it doesn't condone slavery. Its attitude is this detached one, which looks on and is concerned about the principles, which leads me to my fourth principle, which is this one. The Bible's concern, Christianity's concern, then, is as to how the Christian should react to these things and how he is to live in the midst of all this. Now, that is the essence of the teaching. Here it is here. Paul, when he comes to servants and masters, doesn't now begin to give his views as a Christian on the question of slavery. No, no. Servants, he says, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service, and so on. In other words, his one interest is, how are you to conduct yourself as a Christian slave? How are you to behave? And likewise with the master. You masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening. Doesn't tell them to give them all up, but he tells don't, uh, don't threaten them. Don't be unkind, don't be cruel, neither uh, knowing that you are master also is in heaven, and neither is there respect of persons with him. There it is. And did you notice it in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 2? Servants, obey your masters, and you notice not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. He doesn't tell them to rise up and to agitate again. He isn't interested in that. The Bible never does that. But it is very interested in the fact that this Christian man is not going to abuse his position. Not using your liberty, he says, as a cloak for maliciousness. That's the danger. That the Christian may use his Christian position as a cloak for malice that is in his own heart. It's often been done. Things have been done in the name of Christianity that should never have been done at all. And the tragedy is this. It does harm to Christianity. It's been done on both sides. It is because men and masters forget that their duty is to guard their master who is in heaven, that the problems have always arisen. Now, we could easily dilate on all this. There are many people today who say that the working classes, so-called, are outside the church because the Victorian church was a church of the masters. It said very frequently, you go to the mining valleys of any part of this Great Britain of ours and you'll find you'll be told that regularly. They say, you know, last century, it was the same bus in the works and in the chapel. Your head deacon was the manager of the works. And they say, that's why we rebelled against all this. Now you know that that happened more or less in Russia. The monarchy in Russia had got under the influence of the Russian Orthodox Church with that evil men Rasputin. And the Russian people identified that horrible abuse with Christianity. And they threw what they thought was Christianity overboard. 
But they were doing nothing of the sort. They were throwing overboard a horrible perversion of Christianity that isn't Christianity at all. But it's so often been done. It's been done on both sides. And it is very largely because both sides have failed to implement and to understand the principle that the Apostle is enunciating here. Our business, I say, is to relate ourselves correctly, primarily, to the positions in which we find ourselves. And, of course, in Romans 13, you've got exactly the same thing. There the apostle tells them to be subject to the powers that be. For the powers that be, he says, are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, that was written to people who were under the power of the Emperor Nero, of all men. But that's exactly what the, what the Christian is to do. His primary concern is to be a servant of God and of Christ. Whatever his position, whatever his circumstances and conditions, whether he's master or servant, whether he's king or subject, doesn't matter. They're all to submit themselves together and to see that in every way they are behaving as Christian people. They are not to be primarily concerned about the situations and the conditions as such. Their concern is as pilgrims of eternity, as strangers and pilgrims, to be true to their master, to be preparing for their everlasting hope. Well, now I say that that is true on the two sides, which brings me to my fifth and last principle, which is this one. Somebody may ask, well, then what about improving conditions? Somebody may say, are you not by saying all that? Simply taking up, after all, a defense of the status quo. You say you're not doing that, but in effect you are doing that. You are saying that the Christian is not to be concerned about the conditions, but that his interest is to be in his behavior in the conditions. How do we answer that question? Well, the answer, it seems to me, is quite plain. It's this. That it is never the business of the church to be concerned about improving conditions. Her business always is to be laying down these particular principles. She should never attack directly the circumstances and conditions. I say that as I'm reminding you because that is the attitude of the Bible itself. But at the same time, that does not mean that the individual Christian, as a citizen of a country, should not be concerned about improving conditions. Now there, it seems to me, is the dividing line. The individual Christian is never to take the law into his own hands. He is never to act as an individual. But that does not mean that as a citizen of the country to which he belongs, that he is not entitled to take part in improving the circumstances and conditions. So you see, it works like this. This great Christian message is primarily concerned to produce Christians. It preaches its gospel. 
It convicts men of sin. It calls them to Jesus' blood. It brings them to this word by which they can be born again by the power of the Spirit. It changes men. Then, having changed them in that way, it then goes on to teach them these great principles. Now, that is the direct task and business of the church. But as she does that, she is indirectly doing something else. She is obviously influencing the whole personality of such people. She is influencing their mind, their thinking, their understanding, and their everything. And the moment that begins to happen to men, they begin to see things in a different way and they begin to act. Now, let me show by means of an illustration what I'm saying. Take the effect, for instance, of the evangelical awakening of 200 years ago. Prior to that, the common people of this country were ignorant, they were illiterate. They were living a life of sin and of squalor. You can read in the secular history books and get the facts for yourselves. There were no schools, comparatively speaking. It was ignorance, illiteracy and gross and foul sin. What happened? What produced the change? Why were things different last century and still more so this century? Was it because the Christian church set out in a great social and political campaign? And the answer is that it wasn't. That isn't what happened at all. There were always men in the church who were trying to do such things, but it never led to anything at all. Well, what produced the change? Oh, I can tell you what produced the change. The flaming, passionate evangelism of men like George Whitfield and the Wesleys and others was the thing that transformed the situation. What did they preach about? What did Whitfield preach about when he began to preach to those miners outside Bristol? What was his preaching to them? Did he talk to them about their social conditions, about their wages, about the hours of their work? Did he agitate amongst them to change all this and to rise up? Of course he did nothing of the kind. What Whitfield preached to those men was this. He brought them to see that they were sinners in the sight of an angry God. He preached to them about their souls, not about their bodies, not about their circumstances and conditions. He preached to them about their souls. And that led to their conversion. And the same thing happened everywhere where these men went and preached. They were always dealing with men as men, men as souls, and these men were changed. They became Christians. They were born again. What was the result of that? Well, they began to use their minds. They hadn't used them before. They lived to drink and to gamble and to indulge in their cruel sports, cockfighting and things like that. But now, having been awakened spiritually, the whole men became awakened, and they found they'd got minds. The first thing they wanted was to read the Bible, but they couldn't read. So they asked if they might be taught how to read, not in order that they might set up political societies and associations, but that they might read the Bible. 
And so they were taught to read. And thus, you see, they were awakened and enlightened and they began to realize the truth about men and men's personality and his dignity. And of course, having gone that far, they went further. They began then to look at their circumstances and conditions. They began to say, are the conditions in which we're living fair and just and right? And they came to the conclusion that they were not. And they proceeded to take measures to change them. And that's perfectly all right. That's entirely within the bounds of the scriptural teaching. You see, this teaching doesn't denounce slavery, but it doesn't condone it. It doesn't say rise up and change. It doesn't say maintain the status quo. It doesn't say either. It deals with a man. And then the man, under the influence of this teaching, and with this new understanding, he himself begins to examine the position and to deal with it. In other words, let me sum it up like this. The church does not command any of these changes. It's never done so. There is not a word in the Bible which tells men to abolish slavery. And yet we know that it was Christian men who did that eventually. That's exactly how it's happened. That is exactly in accordance with this teaching. There's no command to do it. It doesn't deal with these things directly. And yet when men become Christians, they begin to think. And they think on both sides. I've given you an example of how the men began to think. But look at on the other side. William Wilberforce. A wealthy man born in the lap of luxury. Why did he become concerned about the question of slavery? And there's only one answer to the question. It was his conversion. Because William Wilberforce underwent a conversion that was as radical as that of the drunken miners outside Bristol. Same thing exactly. Here was a man who was entirely changed. And from being a society fop, became a great reformer. And as his mind became Christian, he began to look. And he said, this is not right, I must deal with this. Not because he'd got a command, but because of his general thinking and his general Christian outlook. That is the way. Exactly the same with the Earl of Shaftesbury and the factory acts of the last century. There was another man who underwent an evangelical conversion. An aristocrat of the aristocrats, born in the lap of luxury, but because his mind had been renewed in Christ. He began to see everything differently and he developed a concern. The same with Dr. Barnardo. It's the same with all these men. Well now, if only we could see this. That is how it's done. It isn't the task of the church. And you see, the tragedy is that while the church is talking about these particular problems and is dealing directly with politics and economics and social conditions, what is happening? No Christians are being produced. And because no Christians are being produced, the conditions and the problems are not being dealt with. It is as the church produces Christians that she changes the position. Now, in a most interesting way, I came across a very fascinating illustration of this very point I'm making only last Friday morning. I read in an article a thing that I had known before but which had escaped my memory. 
the great Charles Simeon, Anglican clergyman in Cambridge, as you know, from about 1790, 1790 to the early 1830s. I suppose in many ways the biggest influence upon the Anglican Church up until 1860 of any single man, a man whose influence has persisted even well beyond that. Now, the thing that I was reminded of in the article was this. Charles Simeon was preaching in Cambridge throughout the entire period of the Napoleonic War, from about 1790 to 1815. And during the whole of that 25 years, with all the crises and the alarms and fears, Charles Simeon didn't preach once on the Napoleonic Wars. Not a single occasion. And he was criticized bitterly and severely. Why wasn't he dealing with the facts? Why wasn't he dealing with things that were relevant? Why wasn't he taking up current affairs and dealing with them as he should be doing there were many others who were doing that. Who are they? Nobody knows. Their names are long since forgotten. These topical preachers. They were popular in their age. Nobody knows about them now. Nobody even knows their names. They had no effect upon the conditions at all. They made not the slightest difference to Napoleon or to the Napoleonic Wars or to anybody else. But they were preaching topical sermons dealing with the situation. And their names were in the papers and in the headlines. Marvelous. It led to nothing. The man who rarely influenced the life of the nation was Charles Simeon. And he did it in the biblical way, which is indirect. He did it by preaching the gospel and changing men. The church can't change conditions. She is not meant to change conditions. And the moment she tries to, she's shutting the door of evangelism. If I attack communism, the communists are on defense and are not going to listen to my gospel. They won't even give it a hearing. I mustn't do that. I mustn't attack any of these things. I don't care what they are. My concern is with the souls of men to produce Christians. The larger the number of Christians, the greater will be the volume of Christian thinking. And it is the business of individual Christians then to enter Parliament, if you like, with Wilberforce, or to speak in the House of Lords with the Earl of Shaftesbury, to go on to a local council, to act as citizens. You are still citizens. Act accordingly. Don't let this absorb you. Don't let, let this be the great thing. That's been the curse. I believe the state of our churches today, as I've said, have been largely responsible for that. I'm old enough to remember a time in this country when the essential difference between church and chapel was the difference between Toryism and liberalism. It was the one difference. Toryism defending the status quo. That's the Church of England, we were told. And on the other side, nonconformity. Liberalism. What's this? Changing that old condition. Getting better conditions. Your preacher politicians. Oh, how much those men will have to answer for. As I put it last Sunday, the preacher politician is as reprehensible 
Yes, ye are bishops and archbishops in the House of Lords who are intervening directly in politics and economics and social affairs. They are sidetracking the people's attention from the message of the word of God. They are not producing Christians. And it is because there are so few Christians in the world that things are as they are. Now, there are the five principles, it seems to me, controlling this great matter. And what we must go on to do next Sunday, God willing, is this. Is to see how the scripture gives us further guidance yet on implementing these five principles. We need guidance even about them. And thank God it is here for us. But if we miss the main thing, the central matter, any further consideration will be a pure waste of time. My friend, I ask you again in the name of God, what is your primary concern this morning? Is it the condition that you are in? Or is it your relationship to God and eternity? If you are consumed by your present conditions, if you're agitated and excited and feeling passionately and speaking strongly and condemning others on one side or the other, I say you're already outside the New Testament position. The Christian's one burning concern is his relationship to God and to heaven and eternity. And because that is his burning concern, he looks on at everything else as being secondary. He looks on at it coolly and quietly, realizing that his first business is to be related to it all as a Christian, different from all others. And then, and then only, does he begin to consider whether, as a citizen involved in all these, he should be doing something about them directly, changing, improving, maintaining, whatever his point of view may chance to be. But the final and the ultimate question is always this. My master who is in heaven, whether I'm servant, slave, or whether I'm master, whether I'm owner, are we submitting and bowing before him?